Please pray with me. Sovereign and almighty God, you are holy, holy, holy. Scripture teaches us that holiness adorns your house for endless days. It also teaches us that your children are your temple, your house. Grow us in holiness, Lord, that we might be rightly adorned for your indwelling presence. Use this time spent in your word to sanctify us, Father. We want to look just like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To that end, empty me of all my flesh. Fill me to overflowing with the power of your spirit. Speak your words to your people through me, your humble servant. This I ask in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. How privileged are you? In our world today, the word privilege can have negative connotations because those who are privileged belong by definition to an exclusive group. Our culture frowns upon such exclusivity. The word privilege actually comes from the Latin word privilegium, meaning a law for just one person, a benefit enjoyed by an individual or group beyond what is available to others. So if you are privileged, you have a special right, advantage, or immunity granted or available only to a particular person or group. But what if that exclusive right or privilege includes suffering? Do you or would you see your suffering as a privilege? Suffering tends to turn our focus inward where all we can see is our suffering. We look to assign blame. We beg God to explain it or remove it. Or we engage in worthless self-pity. The life of an English missionary named Helen Rosevere illustrates what it looks like to fully embrace God's will amid extreme suffering. When she became a Christian, her Bible teacher wrote Philippians 3.10 in her new Bible and told her, Tonight you've entered into the first part of the verse, that I may know him. This is only the beginning, and there is a long journey ahead. My prayer for you is that you will go on to know the power of his resurrection and also, God willing, one day perhaps, the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. His words were prophetic. Years later, Rosevere publicly declared that she would go wherever God sent her, whatever the cost. Then she prayed a bold prayer in private, saying, God, today I mean it. Make me more like Jesus, whatever the cost. But please, when I feel I can't stand anymore and cry out, stop, will you ignore my stop and remember that today I said, go ahead. Helen held true to her promise and lived her life completely abandoned to God's will. And it led her, 
straight into incomprehensible suffering. Serving in the African Congo from 1953 to 1973, she was there during a period of violent political instability. At one point, she was among 10 Protestant missionaries put under house arrest by rebel forces and imprisoned for five months. During that time, she endured many horrific beatings and unspeakable abuse. Reflecting on her experience later in life, Rosevier wrote that God never uses a person greatly until he has wounded him deeply. The privilege he offers you is greater than the price you have to pay. The privilege is greater than the price. The Apostle Peter could have written the same words. His experience as a Christ follower included profound suffering. Yet he considered it an even more profound privilege to glorify his Lord and Savior with his life. His instruction in his epistles teach us that Christians will endure suffering when they embrace God's will. But this is a believer's high privilege. The truth we will explore in 1 Peter chapter 4 is that embracing God's will is a believer's privilege. We have two divisions, embracing your calling and embrace your commitment. So our first division is embrace your calling. 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 1 through 11. Open your Bibles and follow along with me. Now first I want to take you back to where we left off uh, last meeting. In, we, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, Peter wrote, It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This verse tells us that sometimes suffering is ordained by God. Sometimes it is his will for us to suffer. However, we must be careful to correctly understand human suffering. Old Saint Oswald Chambers put it very succinctly. He said, to choose to suffer means there is something wrong. To choose God's will, even if it means suffering, is a very different thing. No healthy saint ever chooses suffering. He chooses God's will, as Jesus did, whether it means suffering or not. There is a suffering that is within the will of God, a suffering God allows in the life of a believer. Such suffering is designed to refine us, grow our faith, and bring God and us glory. Such was the suffering of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 18 and the rest of chapter 3 presented Christ as the classic example of one who suffered for righteousness sake and reminded us that for him suffering was a privilege because it led to glory. His suffering was a once for all event that settled the question of sin for eternity. It completed his work of redemption. His suffering also resulted in every believer receiving the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus showed us, by example, that embracing God's will 
is a believer's privilege. This is what Peter refers to in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Believe, uh, Peter calls believers to submit to God's will according to the example of Christ. This is what it means to live a gospel-centered life. It is a Jesus-centered life rather than a me-centered life. Even our attitude towards suffering must be the same as Christ. Though he suffered, he did not give in to evil human desires. Instead, he steadfastly and perfectly lived for the will of God. Believers do the same when they choose to suffer persecution as a Christian rather than continue in a life of sin. We must be done with sin because sin's power over us is broken. We will not do this perfectly, this side of heaven, but we must make it our goal to cease from sin, actively pursuing a holiness which mirrors Jesus's holiness. We center our lives on the truth about him, the good news about him, the gospel. As God's chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, and the people of his own possession, we choose to be controlled by the will of God, not the will of our flesh. This is a conscious choice for a child of God. We embrace the will of God as a privilege when we remain fully submitted to him. Peter encourages his suffering readers to do just that. He teaches them and us that full submission to the will of God is the hallmark of a believer. Peter says that we no longer follow the way of pagans. In verses 3 through 4, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. You see, embracing your calling as a Christian, comes with two personal costs. First, your family and your friends will be surprised and misunderstand you. Second, you will be maligned as surprise turns to ridicule and condemnation. But in verse 5, Peter says that they will one day give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For their behavior. This is a sobering yet encouraging reminder of God's final judgment. We can trust him 
as a just judge. We can be confident that he will do what is exactly right and legally correct according to his holy standard in every circumstance. Not one person will be judged unfairly. Not one. When we get to verse 6, it's much like 1 Peter chapter 3, 19 through 20, where Jesus went and preached to the imprisoned spirits. Verse 6 is an equally difficult verse to interpret. Scholars differ on its meaning. It says, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The best excellent explanation I found says that the people referred to in verse 6 are believers who heard and accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ while they were alive, but were now dead. They are those who valiantly stood for the truth and suffered judgment at the hands of wicked men because of it. In some cases, they were martyred. These believers, though judged by men regarding their human bodies, were vindicated by God and are now enjoying eternal life with him in heaven, in glory. God honored his people because they embraced his will as a privilege while enduring the fiercest times of suffering. Peter shows us that believers have the unspeakable privilege of following Christ's example, even or especially in suffering. What a calling belongs to the child of God. Peter continues in verse 7, beginning with the words, The end of all things is at hand. In true New Testament fashion, Peter lived with the end in sight, with the hope of glory as a beacon of light at the end of the tunnel. Believers must embrace their calling to live well because the end of all things draws closer every day. Peter instructs us in verses 7 through 11. First, he concludes verse 7 by saying, Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Then, in verses 8 through 11, Peter continues to list ways to live gospel-centered lives with the end in view. He says, God calls his people to keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God provides. Now contrast this list describing how believers live according to the will of God with how unbelievers live according to the passions of human flesh in verse 3. First, the world lives in drunkenness, drunk from indulging in the excesses of sinful fleshly 
pleasures. The Christian lives self-controlled and sober-minded. They keep their minds fixed on the glorious character of God and they seek to know and obey his word. They pursue the right thinking that comes from the mind of Christ, right thinking which informs their prayer life. Second, the world lives in lawlessness. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says they suppress God's truth, which is the only real truth, exchanging it for the lies of this world, lies that say there is no relative truth and that you can be whoever you want and do whatever you please without consequence. The Christian lives in sincere love, fulfilling the law of love spelled out in the infallible and unchanging truth of God's word. As believers, we must embrace our calling to love our fellow believers with a fervent love that overlooks mistakes and irritating behaviors. This is God's will for his people. Third, the world lives for sensual pleasures like orgies and sexual perversions. I don't even need to go into what that means. Just turn on your television. In contrast, the Christian lives loving others by showing genuine hospitality without grumbling. This was a true temptation for believers in Peter's day when harboring Christians was dangerous and food supplies often ran short. But their suffering did not exempt them from fully embracing God's will. Fourth, the world lives to malign those who do not think, speak, and act as they do. The Christian lives to serve. In verse 10, Peter admonishes believers to use the gifts God has given them to serve one another. Christians do this by stewarding God's gifts of grace according to his will and to the praise of his glory. By definition, the gospel-centered living that Peter describes requires a submission that is voluntary and selfless just like Jesus. This is how Christians embrace their calling as a child of God, by faithfully submitting to God's will and relying on God's power. Peter elaborates in verse 11, saying service in God's strength glorifies him instead of self. Gospel-centered living is centered on Jesus Christ, not self. All service should be performed so that God gets the credit, so that in all things God is praised through Jesus Christ. Peter's heart overflows with praise and worship at this point, so he includes a benediction at the end of verse 11. He says, To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. We get a taste of the passion of the always passionate Peter. Sometimes he just can't help himself. The truth he has shown us in this division is that God's will is embraced by obeying his call for gospel-centered living. 
How could Jesus' example encourage and instruct you as you seek to obey God's call to live a gospel-centered life? In what ways are you living according to God's will, even as you endure a season of suffering? Peter has offered very clear instruction on how to live a life that is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Make your own list. Keep it handy. Pray for God's wisdom, guidance, and all-sufficient strength to endure your suffering through gospel-transformed thinking and living. Adjust your response to suffering from self-pity to sacred privilege. Examine the cause of your suffering. What type of suffering are you enduring? The suffering caused by the fall, your fall, or suffering allowed by God the Father? If your suffering is because you have stepped outside of God's will, make a GPS move and recalculate how you live. Make it your goal in life to walk by the Spirit, not the flesh. Embrace God's will by obeying His call for gospel-centered living. Then embrace your commitment. That's our second division, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. As we dig deeper into the doctrine of suffering, we must remember that Peter was writing to believers who were suffering because they were in Christ. To comfort them, Peter points to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for righteousness sake and died but God raised him from the dead and glorified him in heaven. Jesus' glory was preceded by great suffering. This was God's will for him. His followers are also bound for glory, so they must also endure suffering that is according to God's will. Now, it is the privilege and the honor of a believer to suffer with Christ and for Christ. This is what it means to share in the fellowship of his suffering. In verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering should not surprise us as if it is strange or abnormal. Jesus suffered. Believers are in Christ and Christ is in them so they too will suffer. Suffering is normal for the Christian and it's also reason to rejoice. Look at verses 13. Through 14, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rest upon you. 
Christian suffering is cause for rejoicing because we are sharing or participating in the suffering of Christ. And we will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This refers to his second coming or his return in glory as the Lion of Judah. Like Peter, we must live with an eternal perspective. Glory awaits us just as it did Jesus. Indeed, Peter says that the spirit of glory and of God rests on believers right now. What exactly does this mean? Well, glory describes God's greatness or the sum total of all his attributes. When we trace all that is true about him as it is revealed in scripture, we find that he is altogether lovely, blindingly beautiful, incomprehensibly brilliant in holiness. Our finite minds cannot grasp the fullness of his glory. We feebly assign the word glory, and even then, we do not really understand it. But how does this word or this concept apply to believers? How do we receive and bear the weighty honor and great privilege that is called glory? By becoming his, fully and completely his. The moment we become a child of God, he imparts his glory to us as a gift of grace. He sends his Holy Spirit to live in us, to sanctify us, refine us, and polish us until we shine with glory. But this is not automatic. The only automatic part is receiving the indwelling Holy Spirit at conversion. The rest of it requires our cooperation. It requires that we trust him and submit to him. When we do, we are empowered to glorify God in every circumstance. In verses 15 through 16, Peter keeps suffering in the proper context for a believer. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Sometimes suffering is a direct result of the fall. We live in a sin-sick world brought on by the original sin in the Garden of Eden. Children get sick and die. People suffer from debilitating, incurable diseases. Our bodies fall apart. Our minds fail us. This is all part of the death and decay caused by sin. Another kind of suffering results from doing what is evil or outside of God's will. This is self-inflicted suffering that is a natural consequence of disobedience to God. It is suffering that is directly linked to the effects of alcoholism, drug abuse, sexual immorality, and other equally sinful behaviors. This type of suffering comes because people choose 
to reject God's will in favor of godless living. But those who embrace God's will and suffer because they bear the name Christian glorify God in their suffering. In verses 17 through 18, Peter draws a contrast between the suffering of God's people in this life with the suffering of the wicked in eternity. He writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? God judges his children during their life on earth in order to strengthen and purify their faith. When he says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, he's not saying that Christians are those who try really hard to be saved and then just barely make it into heaven by their best efforts. No, we are only saved from the death penalty that our sin earns us by Jesus' sinless sacrifice on the cross as the perfect payment for all of our sin. Other translations say that we are saved with difficulty. Peter means that eternal salvation through faith in Christ comes with difficulty in this life on earth. Our loving Father treats us as children who need discipline to learn to trust Him, to learn to walk in His way. In other words, God calls us righteous in Christ, then uses hardship in our lives to increase our trust in Him, to make us more and more like Christ. If that is true for believers, what will the unsaved suffer in eternity for their ungodly deeds? Those who reject Christ can expect much worse. There is no hope, no divine grace, no second chance for them. How heartbreaking. This grim truth should light a fire under every believer to know and to share the truth of the gospel at every opportunity. Unbelievers are headed to eternal godlessness, not eternal glory. In view of that end, Peter insists in verse 19 that believers who suffer according to God's will must entrust their souls to him. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. The word entrust is a banking term, meaning to deposit something of value for safekeeping. We embrace our commitment to God when we place our very souls in his sovereign and loving hand. Peter uses the double attributes of faithful and creator 
to remind his suffering readers, including you and me, how valuable we are to God. He created us. He knows everything about us. He redeemed us from sin and death at the great cost of the precious blood of his beloved and only Son, Jesus Christ. He lives in us. We are chosen and precious living stones built up into his holy dwelling place. He guards, protects, and provides for us because he is not only able to keep us, he is willing to do so. Entrusting or committing our souls to a faithful creator is not a one-time act. It requires a constant committing to him, a constant surrendering of our wills in favor of his good and perfect will. A steadfast commitment to glorify God must be our goal, even in suffering. That gives us our second truth. God's will is embraced by a steadfast commitment to glorify him, even in suffering. How steadfast is your commitment to glorify God? How about your suffering? Be turning your attention away from God's glory and toward yourself. In what ways could you keep your commitment to glorify God steadfast as you suffer? When your life is marked by suffering, remember that God holds your very life in his sovereign hands. Therefore, your suffering, my friends, is an opportunity for great joy. In the New Living Translation of the book of James, verse, chapter 1, verse 2, James writes, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. This passage goes on to speak of the assurance that believers possess when they experience the, the testing of their faith through trials and tribulations that come from living in this fallen world. God matures the faith of those who endure in the midst of testing and trials. He gives them his peace even when they experience incomprehensible suffering. In fact, James says that we will lack nothing as we suffer according to God's will. Helen Rosevere noted that when we suffer, when we embrace God's will and suffer, God's love is unutterably sufficient. We can fully embrace whatever comes our way, trusting that it is God's good and perfect will for our lives. We can trust in his sovereign reign over every detail of our lives. This is rarely easy, but do you truly and fully embrace your suffering as an opportunity for great joy? God's will 
is embraced by a steadfast commitment to glorify God even in suffering. Child of God, how privileged are you? Privileged enough for God to entrust you with great suffering for the sake of his name? On August 29, 1964, Helen Rosevere was brutally raped by her captors. She wrote, on that dreadful night, beaten and bruised, terrified and tormented, utterly alone, I had felt at last God had failed me. Surely he could have stepped in earlier. Surely things need not have gone that far. I had reached what seemed to be the ultimate depth of despairing nothingness. In this darkness, she sensed the Lord saying to her, You asked me when you were first converted for the privilege of being a missionary. This is it. Don't you want it? These are not your sufferings. They're mine. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. She says she then received an overwhelming sense of privilege that Almighty God would stoop to ask of me a mere nobody for something he needed. Even more, she says, that through the brutal, heartbreaking experience of rape, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding. His comfort was so complete. And suddenly I knew, I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. He did understand me. He was actually offering me the inestimable privilege of sharing in some little way in the fellowship of his sufferings. This theme of privilege became prominent in Helen's ministry. He didn't take away her pain or humiliation, but now it was altogether different. It was with him, for him, in him. The weeks of imprisonment that followed and her subsequent years of service were all defined by the word privilege. The cost she paid seemed very small and transient in the greatness and permanence of that privilege. Helen Rosevere lived most of her 91 years as an exceptionally privileged child of God. At the end of your life, will the same be said of you? Choose to fully embrace God's will, no matter where it leads. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will always do what is exactly right for you. He will always have your best interest at heart. He will always love you deeply and perfectly. He will always be unfailingly and completely sufficient. And he will always lead you to glory. His 
and yours. Embrace God's will, my friend. It is your indescribably great privilege. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, Holy Spirit, and beautiful Savior, help us choose to entrust our souls to you day in and day out. In your goodness and great faithfulness, sanctify us through and through. Inspire us and guide us, Holy Spirit, to do good according to the perfect will of our Father God. And faithful Creator, when we suffer, use every part of our suffering for your glory. Equip us to live such gospel-centered lives that despite our suffering, others will see and desire you and your saving grace. This I pray in the most precious name, which is above all names, Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen.